Good morning. My name is Justin Owens, and I'm one of the elders here at Three Rivers Church. And uh, whether you're part of Three Rivers, uh, you've been part of us for a while, or you just found us online, we're really glad to have you with us this morning. Um, We're going to be looking at Genesis 49, verses 1 through 28 this morning. And so while you turn there, uh, I want to take a moment to remind you that at Three Rivers Church, we say that our mission, our vision is for the glory of God to disciple the nations by being and producing radical followers of Jesus Christ. We believe that each follower of Jesus is gifted and called and equipped to engage their domain of society to make disciples of all nations. Maybe the Lord's showing you that you can use your vocation globally or in some other context. Uh, Maybe you feel a leading of the Lord to go somewhere else uh, to further the kingdom of God. And so if that's you or you're interested in talking about that, we'd love to help you discern that. We'd love to help you find the right resources. So if you're going through that, please talk to myself, talk to Pastor Mitch, talk to Sarah Darville, our ministry director for global engagement, because we'd really love to help you figure that out and to continue to equip you to go where the Lord's leading you to make disciples. So now let's look at Genesis chapter 49. Uh, I want to take a moment. I want you to pause the video. Um, and I want you to read verses 1 through 28 of chapter 49, whether you're in your home, small group, or by yourself. Take a moment, read it out loud, because uh, the Word of God is powerful. So pause the video for a moment and read those verses. So as we near uh, the end of the book of Genesis, uh, one of the themes that we see throughout this book is the theme of blessing. It starts when God makes mankind and he blesses them and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and to make, to take dominion over the earth. He gives them a task. He gives them something to do and invites them to join him in spreading his kingdom over his creation. Moving on to chapter uh, nine of Genesis, we see God bless Noah after the flood and he tells him likewise to be fruitful, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And then in chapter 12, he tells Abram, Uh, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This blessing passes from Abraham to Isaac, and then from Isaac to Jacob. And in these verses that you just read, we see the blessing pass from Jacob to his twelve sons who become the twelve tribes of Israel. Part of these blessings is the carrying on of the promises of God that he made to Adam and Eve when they left the garden. God said that there would come a day when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And at the end of Jacob's life, we're left still longing for that one to come. That one has not come and things have not been set right. So there's this longing for this fulfillment and continuation of God's promises. And we see that blessing passed on in these verses. So as we look at this passage, we're going to ask ourselves three questions. What does this passage say? What does this passage teach us about God, his relationship with man, man and our relationship with God, and what does it teach us about life? Then we're going to look at what do we need to apply, what do we need to obey, are there some things we need to do? So what does this passage say? Um, It actually says a whole lot. Uh, If we look at it as a narrative, it's a really short story. Joseph gathers his, Jacob gathers his children together, he blesses them, end of story. But there's a whole lot in those blessings 
uh, that we don't want to just skip over. It's really easy in our Bible reading to come to passages like this and and maybe just gloss over them. But there's some really important truths in these blessings. So as Jacob approaches the end of his life, he's in a sense setting his house in order, setting his affairs in order. He knows his time is at an end. We saw last week in chapter 48 that he blesses Joseph's sons, and now he gathers his 12 sons to bless them and encourage them. Uh, The book of Proverbs in chapter 18 tells us that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Blessings are words, the things that we say, they matter, they they do carry power. Um, And so Jacob gathers his sons to bless them, to speak prophetically over them, and to encourage them in the Lord. Some of the words that he speaks to them are prophetic words about the future of their descendants. And that's an important thing for us to remember. And some of them are just general blessings over them and their families. Uh, As you read this, you'll notice that some of the blessings to some of the children stick out as very detailed, very specific. They're long and elaborate. And then there's a few that are very short and, in a sense to us today, very vague. Um, And when I first read that, I think, man, that's kind of unfair. There's a really long blessing for Joseph, and there's two sentences for, uh, for Dan or for Gad. And some of them seem great and rich and full of promise and hope, and some of them seem like there's going to be a life of hardship. But this passage ends uh, in verse 28 by saying that each of them was blessed with a blessing that was suitable for them. And so in God's providence and God's plan and purpose, each son is blessed accordingly to how they need to be blessed. Now for some of these tribes, we don't have a history in the rest of the Bible of what happens and how these blessings play themselves out. And in some of these, we have a very detailed history For example, in the tribe of Judah, there's a whole lot of information about how this works itself out. Um, But each son is blessed with a fitting blessing. Um, As we continue to think about what does this passage say, the order of these blessings does not follow an exact birth order. It starts with the eldest, Reuben, but then it groups the sons in according to their birth mother. So it starts with the children of Leah, then it moves on to the sons of Bilhah, who is Rachel's servant, and then the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, and finally the sons of Rachel. Now there's a lot of rabbits that we could chase here. Um, I've been around Mitch too long. I think I could make this passage probably five sermons. Uh, There's a whole lot that we could chase just by looking at the life of Reuben or the life of Simeon and Levi or Jacob or Judah. Um, But we're going to try to stay focused and stay on task here um, without chasing every rabbit that pops up. Uh, All of these have a lot that they could teach us. We could learn a lot about God. We could learn a lot about ourselves. Um, But for the sake of time today, we're going to focus on the five blessings that are longer and that are more specific. Uh, We see that Reuben, the firstborn, is passed over as the tribe from which leadership would come. Now, typically you would think that the eldest leader, responsible, kind of blessing passing on, through that firstborn line, but because of Reuben's sins, because of his actions, he forfeited the right to carry on that blessing. He forfeited the right of leadership, and he forfeited the double portion that would have typically gone to the eldest. Uh, If you read Genesis chapter 35, uh, specifically verse 22, uh, you can get more specific detail if you've forgotten what Reuben did, uh, or 1 Chronicles 5, 
1 and 2. Uh, but his sin uh, follows after him, and there's consequences to his actions. Uh, the next is, likewise, Simeon and Levi are passed over. So if the blessing didn't go to the first, you might have been anticipating, oh, okay, well, the next son. But Simeon and Levi are likewise passed over because of their actions. Uh, Jacob's blessings to his children take the characteristics and qualities of each child and almost forecast them into the future as their descendants will carry on those characteristics as well. If you look back at Genesis 34, you see the event that Jacob references here with the anger of Simeon and Levi. And I have to admit, I I would have felt the same anger if I was in their shoes. Um, the mistreatment of a family member, but they they responded in a way that was not right. It was not proper, and it was not the way of God. And so there are consequences to those actions for them. You know, Jacob says that Simeon and Levi will be dispersed amongst the tribes. And when Simeon gains their inheritance in the promised land, it's in the middle, surrounded by Judah. And it's almost like Simeon is dispersed and not really mentioned much anymore. They kind of fade away into history. And then Levi becomes the tribe from which the priesthood comes. And the priests are scattered across the land and don't actually have a physical inheritance of a um, territory. And so both of these blessings come true for these two tribes. They're scattered amongst the others. I'm going to skip Judah for a moment uh, because that's where a lot of the meat here is for us this morning. But Joseph who we've been looking at for many weeks now, he receives the double portion of blessing that would have typically gone to the eldest. This ties in with what we saw in the previous chapter about the blessings to Ephraim and Manasseh. Those two would ultimately be the two that would be adopted as tribes of their own. They're mentioned as getting their own inheritance, and they are the double portion that, in a sense, Jacob adopted into as his own sons. And much how Joseph had persevered in his faith through all odds and difficulties with arrows being shot at him. His descendants would have similar experiences. Many would be against them, but they were going to make it through. Uh, persevering and enduring faith. And now let's look at Judah for a moment. Judah's worth us slowing down and focusing in on for just a few moments. Judah receives the blessing of being the leader or the tribe from which the leader would come. When you look back at the life of Judah, you might think his resume is not any better than the other guys. Uh, some of the things that he did would seem to disqualify him for leadership. You look at what Reuben, Simeon, or Levi did, and um, you look at what Judah did, and you go, man, I, I don't know that he's any better. He was a sinner. He was a big-time sinner. But there's a big difference in Judah and his brothers. Judah's life characterizes is characterized by humility and repentance and transformation. There's a change that takes place in the life of Judah that doesn't seem to have taken place in the lives of Reuben or Simeon or Levi. These are signs of a life that's been changed by following the Lord or coming to know the Lord. So Judah, even though he sinned, even though he made some big mistakes, 
he makes the comment after the fact of, no, you know what, they're more righteous than I am. He recognizes his wrongdoing, and his behavior begins to change. And that change in his behavior is what Paul talks about uh, when he references back to Abraham and talks about how his faith is demonstrated by his actions. So his actions don't save him, but they demonstrate a life that's been changed. They demonstrate that salvation has taken place. So Judah's life demonstrates that something has changed. He's not the man that he once was. And that's the gospel fruit for us as believers. Our lives are changed. We're plucked from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of life. And we begin to live differently. We begin to think differently. We live a transformed life. We even see that when the brothers go to Egypt, um, Reuben says, you know what, Dad, I'll pledge my son as safety for Benjamin, the youngest, who's got to go back with us so we can get more food. Simeon is stuck, left behind as a pledge to Joseph. we got to take Benjamin with us this time. And Reuben says, hey, Dad, we got to go get food. I'll leave my son. Judah, on the other hand, steps forward and says, I'll pledge myself. I'll pledge myself that I'll bring him back safe. And so Judah begins to act as the default leader of the family and the brothers, even before he's ever formally recognized as a leader. His repentance and transformation begin to set him apart. And we see, we've talked about in this series on Genesis how those things point us to Jesus, how Jesus gave himself for us, how he came and he took our place, he died on the cross for our sins in our place to that we could find forgiveness if we repent and believe. And so these things point us to Jesus. Judah is the one we really see begins to point us that way. And we've seen a lot of things in Joseph's life that point us to Jesus as well. This should start to smell gospel. A sinner who repents and finds transformation. Life on the backside is totally different than life before. We also see in this blessing to Judah that there would one day come what's referred to as the rightful heir. There's going to be this one that will come to whom the right to reign belongs. There's this promised seed from Genesis chapter 3. This one who will finally come and crush the head of the serpent. Who will finally set right all that's been wrong. This Messiah who would restore all things to their proper order. It's going to fix what's broken. It's going to wipe away all of our tears. There will be no more death, no more pain and suffering. Uh, It's like Eden will be regained. And that rightful heir will come from the tribe of Judah. His reign will be characterized by abundance and blessing. The lion of the tribe of Judah. One of the images here is that wine will be as abundant as water. Riches and pleasures and and signs of life and favor are as common as anything. And there's going to be a day when all things are restored. All things set right. Things put back the way they were meant to be. Perfect order where God will be with man and man can be with God. And we see this fulfilled in the life of Jesus. He's the descendant of Judah. 
through the line of David, born in Bethlehem. He's the Messiah who ushers in a new reign, a new age, a new order, a new covenant. In John chapter 2, it would be worth your time to, in your small group, look at John chapter 2, the wedding feast at Cana. It's Jesus' first miracle. At this wedding feast in Cana in Galilee, Jesus turns water into wine. In Genesis 49, we see that wine, abundant as water, characterizes the coming of the Messiah. The disciples who were following Jesus knew that this messianic age they longed for would be characterized by such abundance. And this is how John, at the end of John chapter 2, records the ending of this first miraculous event. He said this, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They knew enough from this one miracle to believe that Jesus was the promised one to come. They started connecting all those dots, and they knew, they knew, they knew that this was the one bringing the blessing. And this passage continues, it continues to record suitable blessings for all of the other sons, and they each receive an appropriate blessing and are included as part of the people of God. So even those who aren't given this long, ornate, wonderful, foreshadowing blessing, they're still included as part of the people of God, and they're given a blessing to continue in that. And even though there's less information, they're nonetheless the people of God. I think there's something important there for us to take away, too, that um, I could rabbit trail here. But it's important to remember that our life doesn't have to be characterized by these grand events for us to know God, for us to be a person following God. God is in the ordinary, everyday moments with us, in our homes, with our children, in the hard moments where all we can think is, hey, I just got to get through today. I just need to make it to bed tonight. And God is there and he understands. And in faithfulness and obedience to him, if we do what we need to do and we seek after his kingdom and his righteousness, God is there and we're still his people. We don't have to do these great, ornate, mighty acts to be filled with the Spirit and to know God and walk with him. So that's what this passage says, and there's a whole lot there. But what does this passage teach us? And specifically, what does it teach us about God, mankind, and our relationship with God and man? First, it teaches us that God is faithful. He is a faithful God who keeps his promises. All throughout Genesis, we've seen this. As Moses is teaching the people of Israel, as they prepare to enter the promised land, he wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is faithful. God is going to keep his word. He's promised them you're going to go into this land that's already occupied. It's fortified. They go scout it out and go, these people are big. We look like grasshoppers, but it's abundant. And they're nervous about it. But he wants the people to know that God's promised you this, and he's faithful to keep his promises. No matter how daunting it looks, God is faithful, and he will keep his promises. He is specifically faithful to keep his promise about the seed of the woman that's going to come. 
and crush the serpent and set all things right. This gospel tributary here points us to the fact that this blessing given to Judah leads us ultimately to Jesus. He's that one to come. He fulfills that promise. This reaffirms the promise that one day there would be this promised one to right all wrongs and restore the blessings of abundance in the presence of God. So first we learn that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. Second, we learn that God is both just and merciful. So we see God's justice and mercy on display here. He's just because each of the brothers experienced the consequences of their sin. They experienced the consequences, both good and bad, of their actions. Reuben's not the leader. He's not the preeminent one because of his sinful actions. Simeon and Levi are likewise rebuked for their fierce anger. Jacob even says, let me not come into their counsel. But verse 28 says, this is what their father said to them. He blessed them each with a blessing suitable to them. So they, in a sense, they get what came to them based on the fruit of their actions. But he's also merciful. We see God's mercy here in a very rich way. Because even though these brothers were not, for the most part, great people, they're not killed, they're not cast away, they're not disowned, they're not forsaken. They're still included as the tribes of Israel. They're still the people of God. He is faithful to them. He's patient with them. He's slow to anger. And he abounds in faithful love. And remember, as, as Moses is leading these people into Israel, the Lord has called these very people under Moses' leadership stiff-necked and defiant and considered wiping them out. But he's faithful. He's merciful. He's both just and merciful. This also points us to Jesus. In his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we see the perfect justice of God on display and the perfect mercy of God on display. God's justice towards sin and his mercy towards sinners. And through this perfect life of Jesus, given on our behalf, in our place, for our sins, we see that justice and we receive that mercy if we repent and believe. That's a great promise. And that is the God that we serve. So number three, um, we learned some really neat characteristics about who God is. And we could, we could have glossed over this if we don't stop and look at this passage. But Jacob gives some very specific names for God. He calls God the Mighty One. It's imagery of power. Powerful, mighty, strong. He calls him the shepherd. Shepherd is one who cares for and defends his flock. God is our shepherd. Jesus is referred to as the great shepherd, the good shepherd who cares for his people. Uh, another name we see is the stone. Stable. Unchanging. Steady. You know, in our day we talk about being rock solid as something that is firm, fixed, reliable. And the last one is almighty. Um, he is almighty, all-powerful. Nothing has escaped his providence. Hard circumstances, none of this stuff took him by surprise. Nothing in our lives 
takes God by surprise. Nothing this week has taken God by surprise. He is still the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone, almighty God, reigning and ruling and working all things together for good. Uh, the fourth thing we, we learn about God and man and our relationship is that in the blessing given to Joseph, we see that God gives blessing and victory to those who endure in faith. We have to, in faith, patiently endure the trials of life. It's only by God's help that Joseph was able to prosper as he did. And the same would be true of Joseph's descendants to come. But Joseph patiently endured all that came his way. But he kept his faith in God, waiting for the day that God would fulfill the dreams and the visions that God had given him. It would have been so easy for Joseph to despair, to languish away, and to forsake the Lord, to rot in jail in a pit of despair. But he chose to cling to faith that God is good and God is faithful and God is just and God is going to see me through. And we see the blessing and victory that follows Joseph as he faithfully and patiently endures. And we know that the hope for us as believers is that there is coming a day when this Messiah will restore all things to their proper order. Everything's going to be fixed in the age to come when the kingdom of God is fully established here on earth. All things will be right and there will be victory and blessing in abundance. No more sin. You just think about that. A day with no more sin, no more tears, no more pain. All things set right. Number five, we see that our actions have consequences. Um, one of the things we see here is that the sins of the fathers may be visited upon their descendants. Uh, we see that the behaviors and the character and the actions of the 12 sons directly impact the blessing they receive as well as the mannerisms that will display themselves in the people and the tribe to be named after them. We saw this in the life of Abraham. His sin was repeated by Isaac. Isaac's sin was repeated by Jacob. Jacob's sins were repeated by his sons. This isn't a lesson primarily about being a good moral person, uh, but it does show us that the way of our living matters. Our actions matter. As a father, I have seen in my children my own um, bad behaviors. The things that I don't do well or that I do wrong, I didn't have to teach that to my children. They pick up on those things. And that's what the Bible means when the sins of the father will be visited upon the sons, is that what I do, my kids are going to pick up on. The people who spend time around me will pick up the things that I do, both good and bad. Um, the, the proverb says, "Good bad company corrupts good morals. Right? I mean, we, we pick up the behaviors of those that we're around. We have to ask ourselves, are we truly kingdom people seeking to faithfully live out what it means to follow God in our culture and our context? Do our lives put on display the transformation found in Jesus Christ? 
for Reuben and Simeon and Levi, they lose their place in their line of blessing because of their actions. Judah, on the other hand, displays humility, repentance, and a transformed heart, and he is shown favor. He acts as a leader before he's formally put in that position. Our participation in the blessing of God is directly dependent on our obedience to God. And that can make us a little uncomfortable. That's not legalism. It's not do these ten things to be saved. Um, and so I want to be careful not to convey legalism. Because some of us grew up in a the Bible being a list of to-dos, right? This is a to-do book of A, B, C. And that's not what the Bible is. It does teach us some things to do. It does teach us some things to be, but it teaches us about God and it teaches us how to relate rightly to him and how he relates rightly to us and how he holds us account for our behaviors. We obey out of a heart of love. Jesus told us the two greatest commandments were to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So out of this heart of love, abiding with Jesus, we obey God because it's the right thing to do. And it's where blessing is found. We don't earn anything, but our faith is directly tied to our obedience. Our love for the Lord is put on display by obeying his commands. Jesus said if we love him, we'll obey him. Paul and James both hold up Abraham as a model of faith based on his actions. His actions prove his faith. James says faith without works is dead. And so we can't say that we have faith. We can't say that we love and obey God if we don't actually obey God and do the things that we need to do. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with the illustration. And he, he says that the one, who build, the one who hears and obeys is like a man who builds his house on rock. It's stable. It's solid. The, the worries of the world, weather is going to come against it, and it's going to stand because it's built on a solid foundation. The one who hears and obeys. The one who hears and doesn't obey is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And when the storm comes, it's wiped away. It's gone. It's blown away. The difference is the one who hears and obeys and the one who hears and doesn't obey. Uh, Dr. Alan Ross says it this way. The actions of believers determine their future portion in the sure blessing of God. So at Three Rivers, we sum up discipleship with two words. Hear and obey. Because our obedience matters. Not in a legalism, God's going to get you today. Not in a uh, do these things to earn your salvation, but our obedience matters. The Bible says it matters. The Bible gives us this clear picture of what we sow, we will reap. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap the Spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap the flesh. So what are some things we need to, to apply from this passage? What are some things we need to take away and obey? So when we look at the need to obey, we look at three different areas. What do we need to know? What do we need to believe? And what do we need to do? Knowing is this head knowledge where we gain some awareness of a fact or a truth. Our knowledge leads to our belief. Believing, the way we're talking about believing... It's when we accept something is true in such a way that it changes our actions. It changes what we do. It leads to an action. And that's the key to belief that leads to salvation and transformation. It's a belief that changes us. And then our doing is the carrying out 
of what we know to be right based on those things that we know and believe. So what do we need to know? What do we need to believe? What do we need to do? We need to know that our sin will find us out. And that's a little uncomfortable. Uh, but we need to know that our sin will find us out. These brothers came to their dad thinking dad's dying on his deathbed. We're going to hear some favorable words. Um, Reuben probably knew he wasn't going to be blessed as the preeminent one, but I don't know that they all knew that it was going to fall out the way it did. And their sin found them out. It was not hidden. Even if they tried to hide it, Jacob knew. God knows. The Bible warns us that we need to drag our sin into the light. And Mitch has used the illustration before. We need to ram a sword through it. We need to be done with it. We need to kill it. Uh, Probably better yet, we need to let the Lord kill it. We need to drag it into the light. We can't hide it. Um, The Bible tells us he who confesses and renounces his sin will find mercy. What we uncover, God will cover. But what we cover, God's going to uncover. If we conceal our sin, we don't prosper. We suffer the consequences of our sin. Uh, we, we, we get the consequences of our action, both good and bad. You do something good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. We will reap what we sow. And that's not some weird kind of karma, um, tit for tat. It's, it's just the way the world works. Like the agricultural metaphor of sowing and reaping is that if you sow to the spirit, you reap of the spirit. If you sow to the flesh, you reap the things of the flesh. So we will get what we sow. Um, our sin finds us out. It's always right for us to confess and renounce and find mercy. Uh, one of the practical ways we do this is in our small groups when we pray. We pray through five things. We praise, give thanks, and confess. And then pray for others and self. And in that moment of confession, we confess to both ourselves out loud, to our brothers and sisters in the room, that we don't get it all right. That there are things that we do that are wrong. There's sin that we need to confess. And when we confess, the Bible tells us that we find mercy. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we confess those. So we need to confess our sins. We need to be. We need to know that our sin will find us out. Number two, we need to know that our action or sometimes our inaction matters greatly, and it has great effect on not just us but those around us. Uh, sometimes we say at Three Rivers that sin is atmospheric. It infects the air of the room. It pollutes the air around us. It doesn't just affect you. My sin doesn't just affect me. It affects everyone around us. My sin, your sin, everybody's sin. We all feel that. Right? I mean, a child who is mistreated and taken into defects custody, placed in a foster home, has to go through all kind of medical treatments. Those things are effects of the fall from somebody's sin that are felt in this cascading way by anybody who's around it. And so when we bring sin into the body, our gathering, even just our homes, it wrecks things. I mean, the pattern in Genesis shows us that taking of the the fruit of the tree and eating it and disobeying God leads to this cascade of murder and rebellion and adultery to just five chapters in, you see God say the heart and inclination of man is wicked. And he starts over with Noah and his family. I mean, sin just has this 
cascading effect of destruction. So our actions matter. Our inaction sometimes matters. Number three, we need to believe. Just like those first disciples, we need to believe that Jesus is that foretold Messiah who has come to usher in a new age and a new reign and establish a new covenant by his blood. When we take communion together, and oh how I miss doing that in a gathered setting, right? Because it's this opportunity to remind ourselves of this very truth that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one, the anointed one who has come. The bread that represents the body of Jesus broken for us. The cup that represents the blood of Jesus shed for us to establish that new covenant and forgive us of our sins. We enter into this new age through repentance and faith. Jesus came preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here today, present. I believe it was N.T. Wright who said that the end has come in the middle. What we expected to be the very end of things came right smack dab in the middle of time. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, came as a baby, born of a virgin, lived a perfect and sinless life, took the punishment for sin, rose again, and has established this kingdom has come. It's not fully established. There's still brokenness all around us. But the kingdom has come. The end came in the middle. And we're invited to participate as God establishes his kingdom here on earth. This renewal in the power and authority of Jesus is to be declared to all nations. That's the good news. We go out in his name, in his power, to heal what is broken, to proclaim this good news about the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. So we need to believe that Jesus is that promised one. Maybe you've never heard this message of hope before. Our contact information is all over our website, threeriversc.org. Contact somebody. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Enter into the kingdom through repentance and belief. My email address is justin at threeriversc.org. I'd love to talk to you. Fourth, we need to know that it is the desire of King Jesus to carry this good news to all nations. That was the promise to Abraham, that all nations will be blessed through you. And these blessings are passed on to the twelve sons. In obedience to what Jesus taught as the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. We go and carry this message of hope, this message of good news to all nations, and we invite them into the kingdom of God. We invite them into this abundant reign of the Messiah. We invite them to experience the transformation that we have experienced. And even if this new age, new kingdom is not fully established, we invite them to come and participate in the renewal taking place. There is coming a day when things will be put right. Restoration will take place and Jesus will fully establish his kingdom. And finally, we need to worship, right? Why does this matter? Because we serve a God who is worthy of worship. 
who carries out his promises. He is faithful. He is just. He is strong. He is powerful. He cares for his people. He's patient with us. He loves us and forgives us of our sins. If nothing else from the lives of these people we often consider heroes in Genesis, we should see that they're not perfect people. They're messed up just like me and you. Some of them are pretty messed up, and they are still part of God's story. God's still working things together to fulfill his purpose. He didn't step away when mankind rebelled. What a glorious, glorious truth for us. It should lead us to worship. He told of this coming blessing that was found in Jesus Christ. And he is faithful to that promise. And he invites us to join him and participate with him as his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And our worship of the Lord leads us to go out. You're not here physically gathered in this room with me today where I can send you out of this room. But as you leave your small group, as you leave your home, as you live and engage in your domain of society, we're sent out to proclaim this good news to those who have not yet been transformed. Our worship leads us out to carry the gospel where it has not been. There are those who have not yet entered the kingdom through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus invites us to invite them. So as we close, we're going to worship together. We're going to worship the Lord through song. So let me pray for us, and then I invite you to join us in worship. Father, you are so good to us, better than we could ever deserve. And just like the sons of Jacob, we are sinners, and we don't deserve your mercy. And yet, just like them, we find your mercy. And and we're so grateful. We're so thankful. Um, You invite us to confess our sins and find healing and forgiveness. And I pray that this, this message is one of encouragement and hope and joy to be found in following Jesus. And our prayer is that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And we pray that you would get all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.